0: Psalm 13 is where we'll begin. I'll read from the New American Standard Bible. It says, For the choir director, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will the enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. Now one outline of this short psalm that I looked at that I thought would be easy to remember. Here at Psalm 13 in verses 1 and 2, he describes his problem. Then in verses 3 and 4, he addresses to God his plea or his petition. And then in verses 5 and 6, he states his desire to praise. So a short outline based on alliteration. Uh, You could expand those titles, but they deal with... The basic issues in the psalm. He first expresses his despair with the problem. He begs God's help in his plea. But the mood of the psalm, as they often do, shifts dramatically between the lament, the pouring out one's heart to God... And the final note of the psalm. The psalms move from lament to praise. Martin Luther stated of this psalm, this is a, stomp, a psalm in which hope despairs and despair hopes at the same time. Now in Psalm 13, you notice there's no conf- confession Of sin, there's no repentance, there's no specific circumstances for the psalm described. And that may deal with, as Jason said in the prayer, the timelessness of these psalms. Because he doesn't mention, this is my concrete situation, that may help us apply this to a variety of situations, a variety of circumstances. I want to read it quickly one more time because it is so brief. And I want to ask you after I finish reading... What are some things that stand out to you about Psalm 13? For the choir director of Psalm of David, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him, and my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now what are some things that stand out to you about the psalm? How long? How long? Four times in the first two verses. How long? How long? And we'll see more about that in just a moment. Was there anything else? That is perhaps the easiest feature to recognize right off the bat. Does anything else stand out to you about this song? Okay, very good. Um, One of the things we're going to see is we're going to see that some of the wording of verses 5 and 6 in the praise will answer the earlier problem and plea. That's an example of it. That verse 4, the adversaries rejoice. But in verse 5, my heart will rejoice in your salvation. We want to see that. Just be careful, people. Don't step on my preaching points, okay? (laughs) But, but, uh, (laughs) But anything else. Yes, it's a very extreme verbiage, you know. Um, you know, forget me forever. Um, yes, all the day. You know, just these big, huge, massive uh, situations. He doesn't undersell his crisis. There's no doubt about that. I mean, and he he definitely places this in extreme terms, and he thinks that He is at His breaking point. Now you understand that this is the Old Testament. None of us have felt like that today. <laughs> I, I, I think that we all feel like that. And sometimes I see what other people are experiencing and how their breaking point uh, is a lot higher than mine and I'm embarrassed But he feels like he's at his breaking point and that life is about to be destroyed and he's begging God, act quickly or I'm going to die. And see Brad and Boyd, have their hands up. Um, It's interesting in verse 5 how confident he is that that God will bring him salvation. Yes. Uh, I will rejoice in your salvation. So, out of that despair and hopelessness, he still is confident and yes. is going to have a reason to break. It, a, absolutely, you know there is. It ends on a note of hope. Strong contrast from the situation. Well, I think it seems to me that he is learning some things from his suffering that makes him trust the Lord more. Yes, I, I definitely think we see that in Psalms. We see that in Job. We see that in 2 Corinthians. We see that in a lot of books where suffering is a very important part of the book that through their pain, they learn to trust God more. And may God help us to have eyes to see that. But let's look at this psalm in more detail as he describes his problem here in verses 1 and 2. And he uses that term, how long, four times in this psalm. Now, the book of Psalms often uses that cry, how long. It is sometimes a translation of different Hebrew words. The Hebrew expressions is actually two words here that are translated how long. It's only used a few other times, but the question how long repeatedly appears in the book. And um, so it is often asked. And let me state this. That question is asked often in the Bible. It's asked in Psalms. It's asked in Habakkuk. You're familiar with that. I'll tell you the most striking time that the Bible raises this question to me. is Revelation 6, verses 9 and 10. In Revelation 6, 9 and 10, the Bible says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal... I saw the souls, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on them who dwell on the earth? Saints, in the presence of the Lord, cry, how long? So you see that this is a typical experience of God's people. How long? And as we stated a moment ago... The writer feels like he's at his breaking point and just another straw will break his back. How long, O oh Lord, and his language, as Brad mentioned earlier, is extreme. How long will you forget me forever? Will you forget me Forever. Now this word forget is a word that's been used some recently in the Psalms. Look back at Psalm 9. In Psalm 9, in verse 12, it said, For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And so we were told in Psalm 9 verse 12 that God remembers And God does not forget the cry of the afflicted. In verse 18, Psalm 9 verse 18, The needy will not always be forgotten. Same root word that's used there. Look at Psalm 10. Psalm 10. The Bible says that the wicked, the wicked speaking in verse 11, and he said to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. That's the wicked's estimation. In 10 verse 11. Notice how he uses both of the ideas found in 13 verse 1. That God has forgotten and God has hidden His face. But look at the answer in Psalm 10 verse 12. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. And so these psalms affirm God is not going to forget the needy. God is not going to forget the afflicted. But does it seem that way to us? Often it seems like we are forgotten. In in Psalm 42, in verse 9, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? So, Psalm 42 9, one of the many passages, one of the many passages that you could look at and see how the the psalmist feels that experience of being forgotten by God even though God affirms that we will not be forgotten do we feel forgotten do we feel forsaken often in our world yes and not only to feel forgotten but he says will you forget me forever forever And that word forever is used again in 1611. In 1611, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. It is used there to describe the blessings that come from God's presence. Here it is used to describe the fact that God has forgotten him forever. Will you forget me forever? I want you to also see in Psalms, as one of these lines, one of these how longs builds upon another, there's a little bit of intensification each time around. One way to point this out is this first line, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever, in Hebrew is five words. The next line in Hebrew, how long will you hide your face from me, is six words. The next line is eight words. And there are more than that in English to convey that. The next line, a fourth line, only has five words in Hebrew, but it does introduce enemies into the problem and in that sense intensifies. But at first, it is he is forgotten. And it's bad to be forgotten. It's bad to be forgotten, but it's another thing if someone actively hides their face from you. They hide their face. And in this particular case, he is is not only that God has forgotten him, God has hidden his face from the psalmist. And God's face is the source of all blessings and all hope. For example, in Numbers chapter 6, we have talked about in our Leviticus class, in our regular assemblies, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. That was the priestly blessing announced in Numbers 6, verses 24 through 26. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. And the Psalms use that particular imagery as well. The Psalms speak of God shining his face uh, in Psalm uh, sixty-seven. God be gracious to us. Psalm 67, one, be gracious to us and bless us, and cause your face to shine upon us. In Psalm 80, verse 3, O oh God, restore us because Your face and cause Your face to shine upon us, for we are saved. So that was Psalm 67, 1. Psalm 80, verse 3, verse 7, verse 19. All speak of God showing His face and shining His face as a blessing. Now, There are a couple of passages, and I gave you a lot of the passages in the notes and something that I just sent out. don't know if you've got a chance to see it. Uh, If you do, go back and look at some of these verses. But a couple of verses that speak of God hiding His face. Deuteronomy 31, verses 16 and 17. Deuteronomy 31, verses 16 and 17. Deuteronomy 32, verses 19 and 20. Those verses specifically describe God hiding His face because of our sin. Now, I'm not stating that that's an acknowledgement of sin. Maybe, as in Job's case, the fact that he hasn't committed great sin only serves to bewilder him even more. While this is often a penalty for God hiding His face, He knows He's innocent of any great transgression. Not that He's never sinned. How long, O oh Lord, will You forget me forever? How long will You hide Your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul having sorrow in my heart all the day. Sorrow fills his heart, his life. And he longs for it to end. How long, O oh Lord? Am I going to be sorry brokenhearted and shedding tears forever. And then he asked in verse two, How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Now the enemy has not been introduced until this verse. The enemy in thirteen two is going to reappear in verse four Verse 4, the term enemy will be used again. In verse 4 also, the term adversaries will be used. Plural. So, he has an enemy. He has adversaries. And he says that his enemies, his adversary is exalted. The next verses I give you are all from Psalms. I don't have enough room to write that out. But these verses are from Psalms. 18.46, 46.11, 57.5, and 11.108, verse 5. We can pick some others. The reasons these verses are important is because in the book of Psalms, the one who should be exalted is God, the Lord. The Lord is the one who is exalted in all of these passages. But here, instead of the Lord being on the throne, it looks like the enemy is on the throne. It looks like the enemy is exalted. The enemy is in the place that God should be. Now, that word exalted was also used in our psalm last week. In Psalm 12, verse 8, the Bible said, "The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men." Same word that you used. Vileness is exalted in now in thirteen two. His enemy is exalted. As one writer said, in short, it seems like to the psalmist that the enemy has displaced God. And when he looks to God for help, the enemy is there. And how long is this stay going to continue? We're going to have many prayers like this. And to some degree, we already have. In the book of Psalms, we saw Psalm 10 begin, as you remember. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now that's generally not our custom during public prayer. That we pray like that. And I understand that. I'm not saying that it's wrong in public prayer. Because there are times that that would be appropriate. I am stating that often the public prayer, even if someone's experiencing that, they don't say it because that's not everyone's experience at the same time. Generally, we're not all going through the valleys or the peaks at the same time. And it would be very fascinating in any given service to see where all the people stood in that particular picture in any given service, because you got people all over the board in that regard. But is there a place, even in public prayer, but particularly in private prayer, to cry, how long, O Lord? These people poured out their problems to God. And I don't know Maybe I've just been so accustomed to these words for so long. Why anybody would be troubled with that? Now I'm not stating, don't misunderstand me, that someone can't overstep their bounds. They can. And they can say things in accusation to God that they need to repent of. There's an example of that in Jeremiah 15. And Jeremiah has a prayer like this. And God said, You got to repent. But God is big enough to handle our questions. Now, for those of you who are young people, your parents hope you don't have problems. But if you do have problems, they hope that you can go to them and that you can speak to them. Freely about that. They hope that you can. And our Heavenly Father wants us to turn to Him, for where could we go in such circumstances but to the Lord? And also, these prayers are throbbing with faith in this sense. They recognize that God rules the world, and God could stop our crisis at any moment He wants. He could. Why doesn't He? I don't think we always understand. But in verses 3 and 4, consider, and that word can also be translated look, and some think that even the words of this plea are an answer to the problem. God has hidden His face, and the psalmist says consider or look. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him and my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. God, there are three imperatives here. The word consider, the word answer, the word enlightening. These are all imperatives and you know what an imperative is. Imperative is like a command, isn't it? You know, you learn that in your fine school system. And uh, it, it, and so this is a request for God to act in the most urgent way. Uh, consider, answer, enlighten, and it begs God to act now because the psalmist feels the psalmist feels that if God doesn't act, if God doesn't intervene quickly, that death is the next thing that is coming. Now the word sleep. That's used here in verse 3. Enlighten my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death. The the word sleep used previously in the book of Psalms has been a good thing. For example, in Psalm 3, 5. I lay down and slept. I awoke. For the Lord sustains me. In Psalm 4 verse 8. The Bible said in peace. I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. So sleep had been a good thing. In 3, 5. And 4, 8. Sleep isn't always a. Good thing isn't it. I read a story one time it was one of these drama in real life stories Reader Digest used to have um, of this person who was in the water and uh, he I forgot what had happened but he had had to swim for hours in order to make it safely to land and when he got out of the water He was absolutely exhausted. There was no strength in him at all. But he said, I realized he was cold. He was weary. And he said, I realized that if I went to sleep at that moment, that I would never wake up again. And so he pushed himself and somehow survived the ordeal. That's the kind of sleep The psalmist fears. If God didn't act quickly and enlighten His eyes, He would sleep the sleep of death. That expression is used a couple of other times in the Psalms or expressions similar. In Psalm 76 verse 6, This talks about the the sea and God delivering Israel at your rebuke, O God of Jacob. Both rider and horse were cast into a dead sleep. That's Psalm 76 and verse 6. And Psalm 90 verse 5. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. And so death there pictured In Psalm 90, verse 5, as falling asleep. But enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And one thing that makes his ordeal more terrifying is that the enemy will say, I have overcome him. And they will rejoice when he is shaken. You don't want people to rejoice when you die, do you? Uh, the story is told of Herod the Great that he was knowing that the Jewish people would rejoice when he died and so he didn't want them to rejoice he wanted them to be mourning and so he had given plans to gather a hundred of the most beloved jewish leaders and they were all to be executed at the time that he died to ensure the jewish people were mourning now it wasn't carried out thankfully because harry died and and the decree was forgotten and much Joy was throughout all the land as as he dreaded uh, happening. But maybe it's because of policies like that they rejoiced when he died. But not only is this rejoicing a personal, painful thing, but they're going to question God's ability to deliver too, aren't they? And he doesn't want... The enemy to say, he gives God motives for please to consider, to answer, to enlighten minds. If I do, if you don't, I will die. And my enemy and my adversaries are going to say they defeated me and they're going to rejoice. They're going to rejoice that I have been shaken. Now that word shaken in the psalm, we're going, to, we're going to get that word shaken that's used in verse 4 a couple of times later. Look at 15.5. 15.5. It says, he does not, it's talking about the righteous man. He does not put out his money at interest. He does not take a bribe against the innocent. He he who does these things will never be shaken. In 16.8. I have set the Lord continually before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. And so, the righteous is not shaken. Remember when we were in chapter uh, 10 that the wicked said that he would not be shaken. He would not be moved in chapter 10 in verse 6. Uh, But um, he says, If you don't, they're going to rejoice when I am shaken. Now, what do you see... Uh in the problem, the plea, what do you see in those words that something you want to bring out, something that you want to ask about? Go ahead and feel free. I have my back to you, just shout it out if you have something. In verse two where he says, Shall I how long shall I take counsel in my soul? Does that mean that he's um, turned to himself and seeking counsel from God well I, I don't think it's a rebuke uh, some have pointed out that you see three levels of difficulties um, in the midst of his suffering first of all he feels that God in verse 1 has forgotten him and hidden his face then there is there is a sorrow in the depth of his heart. So, his it, God, he deals with God, he deals with himself, he deals with his enemy. Um, I, I think the idea, and, and I, I wrestled with this too, Mary, in trying to think, what is the best way to summarize that phrase, how long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all day, but it's like, if God has forgotten him, and if God has hidden his face, all he has is his own uh, consolation. Nobody else to turn to. Yes, nobody else to turn to. It seems like to me that that's the case, but, but I may be missing something because there, there may be a prof- more for profound nature of that than I'm recognizing. John uh, Holman Christian reads, "How long will I store up anxious concerns within me?" Okay. NIV says, "How long must I wrestle with my thoughts?" I Wrestle with my thoughts, and and we and I heard, you know. I, sometimes I say I'm not going to mention a name. I'm going to mention a name with this because the reason I mention this name is because this person is really a picture of a person who's pretty stable. And let me tell you something. He said one time. This was Bill Hall was addressing a group of pit preachers, and he said that sometimes there've been problems in the church and difficulties. And he he said he's thinking about them. He's worried about them. And he says, "Okay, I'm going to stop and I'm going to pray. I'm going to take my problems to the Lord." And he says, I do that and I pour out my heart to God and I beg God to deal with the situation and I finish the prayer and I said, okay, that's it. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to focus on God. And he said, all of a sudden, ten minutes later, I realize I'm thinking about that problem again. And... I imagine everybody's had that experience at some moment. Maybe something that's now forgotten because it was so small and it lasted such a short time. Or maybe your pain is perpetual. But, but yes, we have wrestlings in our soul or questioning in our heart. I think we know the feeling, even if we don't know the best way to express it. David? I've heard it said that you know, Christians are the only ones that truly have the right to be happy. And I've heard that preach. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But I also think some people take that too far and say, that means a Christian should never be down, never despair. Uh, And looking at this, I think, is helpful in saying that, that's not really the case. That is not the case, and it's not the. Ca- I-, I can understand what you're saying that Christians are the only ones, in a sense, who have the right to be happy because because we're the only ones for whom it's going to end out well. Right. You know, I and mean, we got to hope we got to. So, I understand that statement, but to act as if we will never become despondent or discouraged in the midst of life, let me tell you. Over the years I've got to teach um, a lot of vacation Bible schools so I try to be very careful this is where a downfall of a lot of vacation Bible schools is the songs they sing I want to tell you a song I've never sang and I, and, I, and some some of you may remember it I'm hoping this is banished from the land. Whenever you have troubles, they will vanish like a bubble. If you only take the time to smile, well, I will be. Where do you read that in the Bible? Where where do you find anything like that? Hey, that's just just not. It's not close to right, and and we'd be careful that we. In fact, I still can quote that so easily. after all these years, shows you songs have a way of sticking with us. And do we want to teach young people songs that may, if they think about them and think that's what the Bible really teaches, might undermine their faith. And say this to young and old but particularly those of you who are young, because you may not realize this. You may, but you may not. Christianity is not a 24-7 emotional high. It's just not. And it's never, it's never going to be here. Because we live in a midst of a world of pain and suffering and evil. If the saints in God's presence cry, how long? How much more will we? Now I want to tell you the times in my life. And and I'll just give you this warning in in case you experience this sometimes. Times in my life, I am the least warning to hear someone else's problem. You might say, oh, it's when you got problems. No. That's not it. It's when things are going great with me. Because I want to think, listen, the whole world has turned the corner, and from here on out, there's nothing, no problems that await us. And when I hit, when I get to one of those moods, which is rare, but when I get there, when I have that feeling, and someone else comes telling me their difficulty. I don't want to hear it at that moment. Because I'm thinking, no, no, the world's good. Don't tell me it's not. But Christianity is not an emotional cloud nine experience. It is not one high after another. It is often crying out how long in the midst of our world... Here are a couple of statements, and I I know a few of you saw these today because I, I sent these out, but I thought these were very, very good statements. The ambiguity and complexity of this psalm accurately represent the ambiguity and complexity of the life of faith. As people of faith, we will always find it necessary to pray, how long, O Lord, even as we simultaneously profess that the Lord has been good to me. Our life is a mixture of lament and praise. The same writer said this, The agony and ecstasy belong together. In Christian terms, we are the people of the cross. At the same time, we are the people of the resurrection. We are both. We're the people of the cross and the people of resurrection. That means in the long run, we will win. In that sense, we are the ones who have a right to celebrate because ultimately we will be victorious because He is victorious. But in the midst of that, we are people of the cross. And life is hard often. Life is hard. Life is painful. And I want to tell you, are there people here in this room, in this congregation that have experienced things that would make me crumble? At my age in life and as long as I've been around, my life has been largely an easy life and yet even life at its best is difficult. Difficult, monotonous, And it leads us to cry, how long? But the only answer to the monotony of life that Ecclesiastes describes, the enemies and pain of life, is the one who died and the one who rose again. He is the answer to this. Yes? I I think that explains, you know, we looked at David uh, killing Goliath. And then later on, he's appointed, uh, as over Saul's army to be successful because God's with, God's with him. Yeah. And I, I've had people say, you know, here's why would David ever reach this point? It, it just shows how human he is and the reality of life. Yeah. He's not going through the same things now as he was when he went against the Goliath or when he was leading those armies yeah. he, he is in a desperate situation mm-hmm. and it looks like he's all alone Yes, yes. Absolutely. In, in in David's life, he experienced many of these things if that be at an early point, even later in his life after becoming king, he experiences difficulties. But um and I'll tell you another experience I think of. You think of David and you think of the the lows he experiences running from Saul and um even his own son later. But I'll tell you I can identify too with Elijah. Think about what I just said a moment ago about times when I'm most willing to listen to someone else's problems. Elijah may have thought after Mount Carmel, the victory is won and the battle is over. And then Jezebel says, Tomorrow you're going to be dead like one of these. And the least times that he's ready for a spiritual conflict is when he thinks the victory is won and the battle is over. And then after the victory he thinks the victory is won, the battle is over he realizes he has to run back on the battlefield. And he's not ready. And I can relate to that. And perhaps you can too. But I want you to see as well, and this is the point that Christy was making earlier, when she almost went too far and reached my point, (laughs) that... That a lot of things said in these last two verses tie with what was said earlier in the psalm in verse five, I have trusted in your loving kindness, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. look at, and this we 're going to find this truth throughout the psalms thirteen verses five and six not only ends with praise but is in an answer. It is an answer to the lament of thirteen one through four. Let me show you at least three ways that that's true. First of all, uh, he says in verse five, "My heart will rejoice." My heart will rejoice. Well, his heart in thirteen two was one that was filled with sorrow all day long and the heart that was filled with sorrow all day long had suddenly become the heart that is going to rejoice the one that she stated Christy stated in verse 5 he is he is going to rejoice and he is rejoicing in salvation in your salvation. Contrast that with how his enemies were hoping to rejoice at his destruction. They were wanting to rejoice at his destruction. Now, he's going to rejoice in God's salvation. The tables are turned. Tables are turned there. You see that idea of reversal. Uh, a lot of times, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, the first will be last, the last will be first, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The one exalts himself will be humbled. The parable of Lazarus and a rich man is a great illustration of that reversal. The one who on earth had nothing is all of a sudden welcomed in to Abraham's bosom. And the one who was experiencing great wealth is begging for Lazarus to come and dip the tip of his uh. Dip, uh Give Him water that He might be free from the torment. Now, finally, another point, a third point. How verses 5 and 6 are an answer to verses 1 through 4. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. With me. This is in Hebrew. Here are the words. Now... This is the same word used at the end of verse 2. In verse 2, it is translated over me. But it's the same. It's one word in Hebrew. Here's the word and here's the suffix attached to it. With me or over me. Same word in verse 6. It's in verse 2. In verse 2, the enemy was exalted over me, but now God has dealt bountifully over me, or with me. So, not only does the tone of the psalm change, the tone of the psalm changes, yes, but it's more than this. The tone of the psalm is specifically an answer to the previous lament in the psalms. As he was pouring out his heart and begging God's blessings, now God has reversed his circumstance. God has turned this around. In verse five, but I, I have trusted in your loving kindness. Do you remember the other night in the sermon of Psalm five seven? I said that that, that verse. Um, Verse 7 of Psalm 5 begins with a strong contrast. It begins exactly the same way that Psalm 13.5 says. It has a, a conjunction attached to the personal pronoun I. Same way here. It's a strong contrast. I have trusted in your loving kindness. And that was also the word uh, we dealt with in Psalm 5.7. And it was fascinating that that word a lot of you here have thought about that word. I had people email me some things about that word. Some of you said some things in conversation. Um, that, that word's a great word. Uh, it is a word that describes God's great mercy, God's great love, God's great compassion. I have trusted in your loving kindness. And my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully over me. The same psalm that begins with the psalmist asking how long ends with the psalmist singing his praises um, Another writer said, we live in a world between the questioning of verses one and two, the pleading of verses three and four and the hope and expectation of verses five and six we simultaneously in those in all those worlds. Right here and right now. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. I think we have been demonstrating as we go throughout the things we've said... This book teaches us a lot about life, doesn't it? While it's teaching us about prayer, and it's teaching us about God, it's teaching us about prayer, it tells us a lot about life. And it tells us a lot about life of the believer. And this book can provide great aid and shelter as we walk through life. Remember, too, how we have said before. I said this, sometimes it does good to make a point more than once, and and we will make, this is the second time I've made it, and we'll we'll make it again. The most common type of psalms are the psalms of individual lament. And yet these psalms of individual lament usually end in praise so the individual psalms move from lament to praise that is true not only of the individual psalms but is true of the book of psalms as a whole in book 1 1 through 41 the most common type of psalm is the individual lament. I'll just call it IL. That stands for individual lament. In Psalms 107 to 150, the end of the book, the most common type of psalm is praise. The individual psalms are moving from lament to praise. The book as a whole is moving from lament to praise the life of the believer is moving from lament to praise. And I know I used that illustration at the beginning of Revelation 6. And those saints were wondering how long, Lord, before You judge those who've killed us and destroyed us. But one day, all laments will be over and there will be nothing but praise. Praise. And those who have held on to God and continue to trust God in the midst of their crying out how long and crying out why will ultimately have their hearts comforted by eternal praise of God. So this movement from lament to praise is common throughout the whole whole psalms. Now, How does this psalm speak of Jesus? We have been doing that to the degree that I think some of you are looking for that. How does this psalm speak of Jesus? Just a question. I'm giving you all a moment to answer. His face on him on the cross when he took on our sin. Okay. Jesus doesn't cry out, he doesn't cry out how long, but he does cry out why. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's the only statement recorded on the cross. In Matthew 27 and in Mark 15. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we could go into a lot of time trying to unlock all the meaning of that and still maybe come up not completely sure. But I am going to tell you something it shows us. Jesus truly enters into our world of pain and suffering. And he, he walks through the valley of the shadow of death. The fact that he takes the most pain filled of the Psalms, he doesn't quote Psalm 13 specifically, but he does quote 22, 69, 31 from the cross. Three statements from the cross are from the book of Psalms. That Jesus can take these and quote these on the cross shows us that He enters into our world of pain and our world of suffering. And and that's an amazing fact. That's an amazing fact. I, I find myself... When I get into discussions defending Christianity, um, and a lot of these are, you know, they may be with people I don't know well or, but I try to keep bringing everything back to the crucifixion and resurrection. And, and I find that often leaves the people speechless. How you answer that? To see all that Jesus experienced and to see the good reasons to believe that He was raised from the dead. But when you go through your moments of pain, realize nobody knows the trouble you've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. He truly does enter your world of pain. But I'll tell you something else that's fascinating. That word, a couple of things. The word enlighten, used in 13, verse 3. He is the enlighten my eyes. It is a word that's used of Jesus in John 1, 9, when it said that He is the true light which enlightens everyone coming to the world. But what I was particularly talking about when I said this really fascinates me, Jesus has cries that are similar to the cries in verses 1 and 2. He doesn't use the word how long in address to God, but He does use a similar word to God. But in Jesus uses how long to as He addresses man. In Matthew 17 and verse 17, in Mark 9 and verse 19... In Luke 9, verse 41, when Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, when He comes down, His disciples are unable to cast out a demon. And Jesus said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long will I put up with you? Does God ever cry out how long in response to us? Yeah, You remember in Exodus 16 when the people stored some of the manna over and then they were told not to go out and search for it the seventh day, but that day it would stay over and they were disobedient. And God says to Moses, how long are these people going to be disobedient? When the... Ten spies came back with the report, and the people said, "We're not going to go back into the. We're not going to go into the land." And they picked a captain to go back to the land of Egypt. God says, "How long?" In Numbers fourteen, the specific passages will be in your notes. Jesus is both the sufferer who identifies with our pain and the God. who is disturbed by our disobedience. But, did Jesus' enemies rejoice when He was dead? And yet, his that rejoicing, His enemies rejoicing, was turned into rejoicing rejoicing for himself and his people Luke, excuse me, John 16 uses an illustration of this the woman that's giving birth is in great pain but when she gives birth to a child she forgets about all the pain And she rejoices in her child. And it compares that to the disciples' response to the death and resurrection. They're going to be in great pain. They're going to be in great grief. But the victory will be so glorious that they will forget all that pain. Any other things about that? Thank you guys for, for listening. I'm going to make... Last time I, I made a mistake of getting not turn the recorder off. And uh, therefore, we got everything between Tuesday night class and, and the time we got here Wednesday was recorded. So if you said something bad about me on that time the recorders picked it up, we're going to go back and check it. So before Brad... Brad